Hello, everyone. This is another episode with uh, Candid Crack. Today we have someone in the US. Martha, how are you doing today? I am doing well. I'm doing a little cold, but I'm doing well. It doesn't look too cold there, uh, at least on the screen. But um, yeah, before we start, uh, explain a little bit more about your background. Um, my background, wow. Um, from, I started in tech, in my career in tech out of, out of college um, with IBM. And I just progressed there, even though I have a degree in technical writing and in English, because I love my creative side. Um, I love writing and everything about it, but I was always drawn to logic and tech. And I think I was pushed there in, in high school. So I followed that path through college and found my way um, to now be the, the head of uh, engineering or retail software engineering at a global bank. Um, so that's a little bit about my background and what, what I do from a title perspective. I'd say outside of that, um, I am really a, a just a person that likes to seek knowledge. I grew up in a household where my dad was an entrepreneur and was always pushing us to try and learn new things. Um, and I think I've taken that into uh, my career everywhere I go. I like to ideate, I like to share ideas, I like to create, I like to encourage, I like to mentor. Um, and, and I think that kind of encompasses what I do and how that comes out in my work every day. That was actually my second question, but you kind of answered that a, a little bit. Um, but explain a little bit more with your, your, the current um, work that you do. Uh, you mentioned you're working full-time in this. Sure. I, I work in an engineering group where we manage developers, particularly and product owners and, and um, scrum masters. We use the agile methodology in order to deliver large scales, uh, digital transformations of legacy platforms onto, you know, to digital space. I, I, I saw on your LinkedIn feed, you've won an award for something recently. You've, you've been a top, a top something of something. Can you explain that as well? Yeah, so I was recently named a leader in diversity in Birmingham. Um, and, you know, it was just like, what does that mean? Right. I'm a leader in diversity. I guess I got awarded, you know, for being excellent in what I do. Um, being a part of a, a minority. Right. I'm a woman and I'm a black woman at that. But I think it's important to highlight that, um, to highlight people that look like me that make it to those levels because sometimes it's a challenge, right? Um, we know that there's, it's a challenge. We have to deal with a lot just to make it into the room. And so being one that has made it into the room um, and being recognized for some of the excellence that I bring to the table, uh, I think was, was pretty cool. I mean, and, and that was so, so that was kind of the stuff that you 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 workshopped with us, this this experience of of diversity from your perspective. And, and, and that so, so I'd quite like to look at who you are from that perspective as well. Sure. Um, so who, who are you from that? That's diverse, Martha, that's achieved. Can you can you tell us that story? Sure. So that that's a deep story, right? Because when people look at me, they see a black woman. Right. But I'm an immigrant and, and I relate to that. Right? I'm a naturalized citizen of the United States. Um, I speak Creole. I speak French. I speak English. And that's not necessarily seen. Um, and so for me, my path uh, to, to leadership and to where I've made it was, I'd say, a difficult one, a challenging one, but one that allowed me to also teach people that 
don't just judge from what you see, right? A lot of times just in the room where there were opportunities for me to be able to join a team that might've been pitching to someone in Canada and they're just like, who speaks French? Like I do. And they're just like, You're, you speak French, Martha? Like you can understand this. And, and so it's like a pleasant surprise. It's almost as if like, it's, it's not expected for someone like me to have different dimensions because we're looked at like a monolith and we're not. There's so many different levels to you know, people of color. And one of the things that I've always taken with me um, is what my dad taught us, right? We moved to the United States because we wanted opportunity. We all have the same gray matter. We all, you know, have the same brain. We all have the same capacity to learn and always go in there and just say, look at it from an excellence perspective. Do your best with everything that you do. Understanding that you will be, you know, critiqued a little harder. You will always be challenged, you know, to, to justify why you're at the table but just take it as an opportunity to teach. And that's what I've done each time. Um, and, and it's actually earned me the, the title of master of conflict because I'm typically brought into the room whenever there is any conflict between um, someone that may not look like me, you know, or made an assumption to say, how can we calm this and how can we come to a compromise in the middle? And I think if we all look at each other as, yes, we are all human. We all have the same uh, gray matter. And it's just a matter of our experiences, our different experiences. And we can respect that. Then I think um, we'll be a better place. But that's how I always approached it. And that's how I'm always able to get into the room. Because I, I typically don't let it, try not to let it get under my skin. I just try to let my work speak for me, right? My, my excellence speak for me. Um, and so, you, I mean, you're from, or you live in Birmingham, Alabama. So, yeah. I mean, and again, we're, Oscar and I, you know, not, not being from the States, we, we hear Birmingham, Alabama, and, and we, we, we have a, a specific, I guess, bias about what it would be like there. Um, yeah. And I guess you know what that bias was, is probably like. I mean, how, how accurate is it and, and, and how, you know, how, how, how are you living through that sort of external idea of Alabama, which I assume is, is is a part of the U.S. consciousness as well. There's a certain feeling about Alabama. It absolutely is. Um, I was very hesitant to move here. My husband's from here. You know, I grew up in Miami, which is the melting pot, you know, of immigrants. You just walk around and you have different languages being spoken, different people. You think when, but when you think of Alabama, you think of racist. That immediately comes to your mind. Um, even though, you know, you, here's the, the, the birthplace of the civil rights movement. You feel like coming to Birmingham, if you're outside of Birmingham, that there's a deep seated um, feeling still of racism. What I have found coming is that I think Birmingham now in 2021 is going through a, a change. They embrace, they're embracing their identity, but they're also trying to say that we wanna be the leaders like we were in the civil rights movement to push um, diversity, to, to say that we're not like how we were before. We understand that our differences is what make us better together, right? And, and I think there are a lot of initiatives from a city perspective that they are implementing in order to do that. Um, I know that there's a big push from uh, the politics as well to try to change some of the politics on the books that makes it a lot more attractive for economic development because you have, it, it impacts our ability to grow, right? Because the perception, like you said, is that why would I come to Birmingham? Is there talent there? Do they want, you know, diversity? You know, where, how can I grow there? 
and um, with different initiatives like the Birmingham Promise, like um, which is the the investment in high school kids to be able to be placed from inner city schools to be able to place with large corporations and um, apprentice under executives, you know, like them opening it up and saying that we are going to now allow you to go to a community college for free, no matter what your background is, right? To give them access to education, to open it up, to say that we, because they understand it is not just a, a racist thing, it's also socioeconomic, right, as well. And I think that Birmingham is trying to, to push the needle forward um, and, and to, to say, we are no longer that city. That's, that's no longer our identity. That's where we started. But now we're really moving the needle to say that we are open to any, everyone, any and everyone. So as, as your, your leadership and diversity award, that is part of that, that development of, of the city. It is the part of the development of the city, and it's also the, it's also acknowledgement of what the company that I work for has done, you know, for the city. I was one of the the executives that did sponsor a a student, a young girl, under me, an apprentice under me. So she was just like, I never knew that, you know, someone that looked like you would be leading this meeting. So I brought her into all of the meetings with me. Um, and she got to see how I ran that. And that's important because if they don't see it, then they don't believe that they can be it, right? So again, it's about access. Um, so yes, that, that award was, a, was about that. I also do a lot of um, role-playing and training to help uh, younger, younger people that look like me interview because that's another problem. It's about, they might be able to get to the interviews um, stage, but how do you make it over that? I, I had this one, this one developer, he went to University of Mississippi, had a degree in CIS, um, was also a football player, graduated with a 3.6 degree. And he was just like, I cannot get a job. He was, waiter, he was a waiter at, you know, three years later, he was a waiter and he could not get through the door. Um, he interviewed with a couple of my managers and um, they were like, I don't think that he'll be a good fit. I said, let's bring him in again and let me, let me sit in on the interview. And when I sat in on the interview, it wasn't that he could not do the job. It was a communication problem. He couldn't communicate and articulate his skill set. when you started to ask technical questions like, okay, well, you know, what did you do with your, with your degree? What projects did you work on? He said, I built a, I built a database, you know, that was searchable by coaches that can look at all of the players from, you know, 2001, to, to present, we were like, okay, well, what did you do? What were the steps? And you couldn't articulate that. Like, well, how, if I'm, if I want to go on, how did I do? What, what code did you use to build the front end of it? I had to give him some guiding questions. And when I did, he was able to articulate what he, his skill set was, right? But if I wasn't there at the table, he would continue with interviewing and not being able to, to articulate that skill set, and I noticed that this is a problem. While we also have, you know, an access problem, people say we have a pipeline problem. Not necessarily pipeline. It also goes back to the ability for people to articulate their skill sets. And I've kind of seen that, and said I need to do something about it and, and help them articulate those skill sets so they can make it in. Um, he made it in, and he became one of our best developers, right? And I got him coaching from a communication standpoint. Being able to articulate your skill set is critical because I can know how to code all day long, but if I can't tell you what I've created and how I created it and how I can bring you value, then as an employer, yes. And as an interviewer, I will pass on you. So it's, 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 a, 
it's a um, multifaceted problem, right? I think it's a problem with, you know, the community and how we teach and how we prepare, you know, people to enter the workforce, but it's also a problem on um, having people that look like me that can help extract that because I understand, you know, maybe some of those plights. So that, so that tension where, where someone who looks like you and, and you're interviewing someone who, who is a black American or Afro-Caribbean American and you, um, you, you enable, you, you sort of probe into, into that communication challenge to, to really extract it. I mean, and the, the standard is just, is it almost that, that racist, oh, you're black, therefore you're stupid, get out? Or is there something else going on there? Um, I think it's, it's not always that. Right. It's just it's not always black and white. Is it you know, black and white? Like, no, you're just you're just you're black and you're dumb. You do have some people who bring that some conscious uh, bias to the interviews. But I, I think that you have people who generally want to try to find the best person. And in the interview process, if you can't communicate that, how do I know that you are the best person? Right. And so I think that that's why I'm saying that there's a hurdle there. But there is also the hurdle of, yeah, I'm coming into it expecting that this person won't perform at a certain level. You know, it's funny, even on the, the post that you mentioned on LinkedIn, you know, there is someone that posted, you know, people said well-deserved. A lot of my colleagues who worked with me, like well-deserved, well-deserved. And people are like, well, why? One, one white guy came on and was just like, well, why is it well-deserved? tell me what does she do to bring shareholder value? Like it's always having to prove yourself, right? It's like, well, the CEO posted, like I've been on panels with him. I've spoken to him. I've met with him. I've had to report to him and he understands the value that I'm bringing, but yet I still have to, you know, tell you why I brought shareholder value. It's, it's that in the back of your mind, it's a lot of times I think that people, we all need to have some humility and there's an arrogance at times that, you know, white men or white women are just superior and they're better. And they're not thinking about, wow, you know, let me, let me sit back and think about what value this person can bring. They're going to look at it differently because their experiences are different. Their background is different. Um, and, and speaking to the point of, you know, the, the session we did, I think it's so deep rooted because of what they've seen and what they've learned about you know, what Black Americans or Afro-Americans or Afro-Cuban-Americans bring to the table, that they are not humbling themselves enough or to take a step back to say, well, let me challenge my assumptions, right? Let me challenge what my beliefs, let me challenge what I've been, you know, what I've been taught. Um, and I grew up in a, a very religious household, it's almost cult-like. So I'm pretty, I'm hyper aware of that to where I'm always asking the questions, well, why am I thinking this? What other information out there can help me understand this person better or this product better or this company better? And I don't think that enough of us do that. So you, you talked about that workshop you did with us. So, so you entitled it the, so the weaponization. weaponization. Of imagery, yeah, um, and and we've had feedback from the participants about just how powerful it was. Now, again, just just for the wider audience, that mainly those participants were the ones from the Tuesday night, which is when you have a very European and a, a APAC Asian audience, and and they were just the they were so unaware of that perspective on America, and you blew them away. They were just going, "Wow, 
uh, I didn't realize this was going on. So can you share a little bit about those themes that you were talking about that blew that audience away? Um, you know, what is the weaponization of imagery and, and how does it impact the life of a, of a, a strong black woman in, in Birmingham, Alabama? Sure. So the weaponization of imagery is really how Black people are portrayed in print and media from the 1930s. And, you know, and when, when we started with the, the Mamie archetype and the step it, fetch it, where, you know, Black people were only put on to TV to entertain and to look stupid and to, um, to, to speak in a way to where it made people think that they were naturally illiterate um, and couldn't comprehend complex, uh, complex things. And that then um, metamorphosized into the 80s of like the drug era to where they portrayed black men as gang members and as drug addicts and then women, black women as welfare queens, right? And so if you continue to see that over and over and over again, um, it becomes a belief. And, and it's subconsciously when you see someone that's, that's black then you're going to be surprised that they can master the English, English language. You're going to be surprised, you know, that they're at the top of their class. You're going to be surprised that they made it into Harvard and to, to MIT because your expectation is that um, they should be uneducated and they should be poor and they should depend on the government. Right? And that's all been pushed through, you know, the Hollywood stories on how they cast men and women into these roles and um, and just different shows on TV to where, you know, you have like cops on TV where you see people get arrested and 90% of them are black males. So that naturally will make someone think that all black males are, are, um, are, are thieves or, or criminals, right? And so that then spills into, if I go to interview, you know, the shock of, oh, you speak so well and you understand this position and you can bring this or you can bring that to, you know, to, to the table because in the back of their mind, we shouldn't be able to do that because they've been inundated with all of these negative images um, of, of black people. And that, that really was the, the gist of it. And we'll, we continue to see that. Um, but, I'm, but I'm happy you know, now that we have Kamala Harris as you know, vice president at the highest office that maybe we'll start to change that even though I still think we have a long way to go, but maybe we'll start to change some of that. The, um, you, you mentioned, you, so you portrayed this picture, right, where, uh, where there's still a, a lot of challenges uh, happening in the U.S. Uh, and you, you mentioned Camilla uh, Harris. Camilla Harris. Um, so how, how do we move beyond that? Because you, you coach people. Uh, you gave an example of, of this young man, I think, was it, uh, I think it was a man. Yeah. Um, and how does this person then move up within the business? Because that's another challenge that they face. Sure. So how they move up in the business is, is they need to learn how to communicate, right? So we provide them with resources. I do a lot of role playing with them um, because what I expect is before we go into a meeting, especially as a developer and they're reporting up to me and we have to report up to our, to our executives on where we are with projects, I will role play with them and I'm like, I need you to explain exactly why this feature was put in, how it was put in, what are the risks? And we will, and I will continue to drill into them 
how they need to be clear and get it down into like maybe three to four bullet points, right? And to get over the rambling and to be clear and concise and to understand the words that you're using. But in the middle of that as well, it's understanding how to communicate the value you bring by what you created, by the feature you coded. And so I do a lot of role-playing in the corporate world with that and coaching them on that. Also do a lot of co uh, coaching on confidence because it's also about how am I gonna be perceived if I have a heavy accent, like, you know, if I have an Alabama accent and I'm working, you know, in this corporate environment, I'm automatically labeled as illiterate or dumb, right? Um, and, and so some have said, I'd like to go to coaching to do some accent correction. Like, I have no problem with that. You can absolutely do that. But it also speaks to the, the fact that we still feel like we need to conform and we can't be ourselves, right? Because what's accepted? The fact that you're saying, yes, Martha, now I can articulate, you know, why I took this approach and what value it's going to bring and how I'm able to deliver faster. But I think that I still have too much of a twang. So can you help me or, or advise me on who I can get to or work with to get an accent correction? But yet there are people who might have a, 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 a Spanish or, or a Spanish accent or European accent and it's considered, you know, oh, you're distinguished <laughs> and, and, and you're smart, right? And so again, all of these little things come into play that I don't think that everyone thinks about, but these are the things that black men and women are thinking about because we're still thinking about how do we fit in and how are we accepted? And, and those are some of the things that we think, we, we feel like we need to correct. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of the 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 British the cliche of the British accent. It's, you know, just because you've got a British accent, you you must be smart. Um, but it, from an opposite perspective, and, and I think that I mean that's something that I and I said I was, I was probably out of everyone we've interviewed, I've been most nervous coming to interview you, Martha, because your experiences are just something that is so alien to me. Um, I mean, I've I when when you. After, after the session you give, I, I, I read Stamped from the beginning, which is just a stunning uh, history of Black America. And it, and it blew me away again of all of this was going on for, for so long. I mean, and is, there, is, is there a chance of developing that kind of consciousness in the States where that kind of Black history is everybody understands it um, and everybody understands the, the the biases that took America to where it is. Because for me, I was reading it just going, well, if you understand that, then you understand so much about what's going on now. So is, is that something you're hopeful about? I'm hopeful about it. I, I, I try to stay hopeful about it, right? But um, we literally had a conversation about this not too long ago because I know you guys saw in the news with the storming of the Capitol. Right. And the discussion that, you know, me and, and some of my peers were having were what if they were black? Would the police have have maintained the restraint that they did? Yeah, we know that they were outnumbered, but would the National Guard have come in quicker? Would neighboring states would have sent police quicker? Look at look at why they were storming the Capitol. And there's a lot of comparison to the Black Lives Matter, you know, um, protests. But the Black Lives Matter protest was about, you are killing us in the streets. You can arrest someone who's unarmed and take them in alive and let them go through due process. But here it is that you are on sacred ground, the capital of the United States with uh, 
with flagpoles, with, uh, you know, all types of sticks and with mace, with bear spray, and you are assaulting the police that you say that you, you know, should respect and um, you, you get to go home alive and you get to go through your due process and you get charged and you get to decide when you turn yourself in, right? And so it shows the, the hypocrisy. Um, so the, the, on the one side, I'm hopeful because this is being exposed at such a national level and it's gonna force us to examine the soul of America and how do we heal? But then at the same time, I'm, I'm nervous because you have our leaders who are on national stages trying to gaslight you know, us and tell us that, no, that's, it wouldn't have happened that way. Like you guys didn't see what you just saw, right? Um, and, and that's the thing. But the one thing that I will say, the reason why I'm hopeful is because I have my sons and my sons look at this and they're just like, that's never gonna happen again. Like we're gonna make sure that we listen to everyone and the laws apply to everyone else. They're just like, we need to change the laws, right? And so they understand it already at 10 and 12. They understand, and they're like, and we need to get, you know, we need to make sure that we're in positions that we have the economic power to be able to get the messages out and to change the laws so that it applies to everyone. But changing the laws is one thing. It's just, how do we change the hearts Right? How do we change the hearts? It's, it's gonna be one by one. It's gonna be having courageous conversations. It's gonna be to spark curiosity again, because I, don't, I think we've lost that. People don't care about what my experience is. Um, and, and we need to, right? Because if we're going to get to this next level as it relates to the human race, it's gonna take all of us to be able to work together um, and to be able to, to complement our differences and leverage them to create new products, you know, to create new societies so that we can, can, can advance. So th that's why I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful just because of some of the things that, you know, the way my sons see it and seeing it through their eyes. Just the, the, the narrative that you just uh, described, Martha, um, what's going on in the US, is, is that also a conversation that's been introduced at sort of uh, leadership level? Is this yes. a conversation that they have in-house, yes. in organizations? So how is yes. this introduced? So what, what's been introduced is, I, th I think what, what we've done is we've introduced them at a, at a micro level and then pushed it up to a macro level. So what we did was encouraged small conversations among team members, right? Um, and we've had, I mean, hundreds of conversations since last summer to encourage transparency and to, it, to create safe spaces for everyone to speak their piece. And there are some hard conversations. There were conversations where white men were like, well, why do you need special treatment? I don't understand that, right? And, and to Rich's point, if you read history and if you were you know, well-versed in history, then you will understand the systematic nature of, this, of, of the oppression that black women or black men um, experience. And so having those open and open and honest conversations um, spark that curiosity, spark them or move them to go read books about it and to come back and ask questions and to start to change their minds. Because that's the other thing is we can't be afraid to change our minds about what we might've been taught. 
Right. And so once we started there, once we've had those, after we had those, then we started to have bank wide or company wide conversations about it, which were courageous. And it, it was led by our CEO, which was fantastic. Right. Because he talked about some of the things that he didn't know about. It was about the vulnerability, the transparency and um, and encouraging all of the peers, all of his peers at that level to, to, to show that same thing. And by him doing that, it opened up the floor for everyone else too. Um, and we continue to have those conversations at a leadership level. So once you do that, you make, you create a safe space for us to talk about it. Cause if you don't talk about it, you can't, you can't solve it, right? Or you can't, you can't move to heal. And so I'm very proud to be able to work for a company in which we moved in that way. And we thought it was that important for us to want to make it an initiative and to put money behind it, um, but also to talk about it because it used to be taboo in the offices and now it isn't. So how, how is this conversation? Because uh, uh, this being well before what happened with the White House and the Black um, Matter movement, um, it's been a, a longer narrative uh, for quite a few decades. So how is this conversation different than let's say two three decades ago it's different because um i think people are feel more safe to to express the thoughts they're they're what we would call quiet thoughts the things that they were afraid to say the things that they were afraid to ask in the beginning because i've been a part of diversity talks you know when i've worked at ibm and we did all these and it, it it felt um it felt forced and it felt like a formality like okay we gotta do it right um, we got that program over with, and now we're, we're done. This is a lot, more, a lot more heartfelt. And I think that people are encouraged to challenge the thoughts that they are thinking about and, and some of their, their beliefs. Um, and you have Black people that, that are a little bit more brave. We've, we've gotten a lot more brave to talk about our stories um, and to, to talk through our experiences, which then makes it easier for our counterparts to just say, okay, I did not know that, right? To, to really take it in to, and to sit with it, especially the ones that might be really close to us. Like, Martha, I've known you for 10 years. I didn't realize that this is an issue for you, right? Um, and I think it starts with us talking about it and them, you know, being empathetic and being open to listening and then being, having honest responses to it. And I think that's what the difference is today. So I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the plurality of what you're trying to do. And again, I'm just going to go back to, to what I learned from Stamp from the beginning with the, 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 the discourses around slavery then, where you actually had um, some quite enlightened, enlightened at the time white people looking at liberating the, the black slaves. And you actually had, um, you know, one, one strand of thought was that over time, blacks would turn white, so, so if you liberated them, they would actually evolve into white people. I know you're smiling, but this, this was serious thought at the time. And another, another one was, no, they're a separate species. So it, it was terrible to enslave them, but send them all back to Africa because they can never contribute because they're never going to. So the, 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 this was like, again, this is why this book blew me away as you're talking, because I'm just like, so what were you thinking? Um, and these were the enlightened people who were anti-slavery trying to, to. So it's that the fact that you're, you've got that framing everything that you're trying to do, that long history of, of separation uh, between between the races. Uh, and now you're trying to be pluralist. Now, um, yeah, that is 
tough anyway, being pluralist in this divisive world that we're living in. What what tactics are you using to um, to enable pluralist discussion? And and have you got any stories of uh, examples of of outcomes that have been incredible because of pluralist discussion? Um, I'm just trying to think of of one that. Um, that will resonate here because the, especially with me, one of the things okay, that, that came out of the last discussion um, is again about our hair. And I think I've discussed this a little bit. And I'm gonna go back to something else you said because you're talking about you know, the abolitionists and what their thought process was. But then when you look at you know, how black people were, were considered three-fifths of a man here and that's how they were, they were treated a certain way. And that's the hurdle that we need to jump because they didn't even see us as human, right? But even as you know, we, we have advanced past, tried to advance past a lot of that thought process, talking to white women and white men about black people's hair right, is like the standard of beauty that we go by. Like I said, I straighten my hair. My hair is naturally curly. I, sometimes I wear it curly, but for the most part, I wear it straight now because it's easier. But before um, it was considered unprofessional, right? Just how it grows out of my head. So much so that in the United States, we had to create laws to not discriminate against black women because of their hair because of the way it grows out of our heads. I had uh, one of my peers message me and she said, you know, Martha, I had no idea that this is what you dealt with. And um, another one said, I'm sorry that when you wear your, you wear your hair curly that I asked to touch it. I said, yes, that's a violation of my personal space. I am not a pet, right? Like you don't go to, you know, a white male or a Spanish woman who might have curly hair to say, can I touch your hair? But she's just like, I, I never realized it. I was just curious because it's so versatile, right? My hair can't do any of that, but they don't realize how deeply ingrained it is because the thought process is, it's not professional. Who made that rule? I don't know, right? Um, and it's fascinating and it's exotic, right? But if I never talked about it, they continue to go on with that. So that's why I'm saying it's the, trying to change the minds of, and the hearts of people by saying, this is my experience, guys, you see me like this every day and I walk into the office and I don't have issues and I'm like, okay. But just thinking through, how am I gonna wear my hair today to work is an emotional burden, is a psychological burden for us that we bring into the office and helping my peers understand that. Like, how, how am I contributing to that with how I think, what my beliefs are? And I never realized that, and now I know. And so the next black woman that I meet, I know not to do that, not to ask to touch her hair, right? So those are the types of things that I think that we'll continue to have to do. Because again, when you, when you see it on TV, they make it look crazy and make you look crazy and make you look like a mad woman. So when you see it on someone who might have on a suit, but might be wearing the Angela Davis Afro, they're looking at you like, oh, she's gonna come in here and she's gonna cause problems, right? Um, and so it's about continuing to have those conversations and then continuing to show those experiences to try to start to change those, those hearts and minds. Um, and, that, and that's the only way that I think that we can do it. 
is individual by in telling these individual stories because we, and, and to tell our own stories um, in digital and in print. And we're starting to do that a lot more in the United States, right? We're starting to tell our stories. Um, and I think people are, are starting to, to see us a little differently in that sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's again, it, this is this is I just struggle to get my head around that experience and, and that, you know, so the, the the sharing of that experience is so it's consistently been powerful for me in, in, in every time we've talked to you. Um, so do you do you see hope when I mean, you just sort of said that, that it's beginning to be in print? I mean, do you, do you see hope that, that this experience can be become mainstream and can become something that. We, we all just sort of go, oh, my God, you, you know, we didn't realize. And, 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 and therefore you can you can start having grown up discussions that join up the dots and, and do something about it. You're, you're, you're seeing, the, I guess, the green shoots of that happening. I, I you know, I am. Um, I am here and there again with the conversations that we're having. But I'm also happy that, you know, in Hollywood, we're starting to tell a lot of stories. Right. There was a great um, movie that came out. Um, one night in, in Miami with uh, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, um, and uh, Sam Cooke, and the football player, and I can't remember his name right now. And it just humanized them, right? Because when people think about Malcolm X, they think about this radical, you know, who, who hated all white people, but it showed the human side of him. And I think people mm -hmm. can relate to that. There's another Spike Lee movie that came out about police brutality and about the killing of black men um, called American Skin. It, it was, it moved me to, to places that I didn't even think that I can go because it was about, you know, a father's love for his son that was killed by a white um, police officer. But it also showed, you know, how the police officer view of it and how his biases, you know, just inherently made him afraid and made him act, right? But then also, you know, you can't, you have to watch the movie, but then showed at the end, how at the end, the police officer said, I felt your pain. They, he saw the human in him because he had a son and he thought he was going to lose his son. Right. So by confronting that and seeing the humanity in each other, by telling these stories and not continuing to show the stories that all black men are drug dealers and all, you know, black women are prostitutes or, or welfare queens we'll start to change the minds because I think storytelling is the, the best way for us to be able to do that on, in scale. I can do it with my community, with the people that I know, with the people in my, my sphere of influence, but how do we get the masses to really understand that? It took media and print and movies in Hollywood to drill this belief into you know, the masses through through movies, um, and it's gonna take our stories to do the same thing, to reverse that thought process. And I think we, we're starting to do that um, in the States. And when we continue to do that, we'll slowly start to chip away at, at some of the issues that we continue to see. Um, yeah, I'm, so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, this is the one part of your experience that I sort of now understand, because I'm looking at, one, one of the things I'm fascinated at is, is eco-leadership or grassroots, grassroots leadership movements where, where this kind of activity at the bottom 
um, is is going to be the way that we identify leaders of the future and develop leaders of the future. It's not just because you're at the top of a hierarchy and you lead that way. It's because you've you've grappled with complex problems at the ground level, and yep. you've you've started solving it. So, are you seeing evidence of this grassroots leadership? You know, people people who are developing in front of you because they're grappling with these challenges and you can sort of go ah oh, this this is someone that that gives me hope that we're going to develop these future leaders well absolutely um i've had people come to me and and said martha i want to ask you hard questions and i'm like apps and and that's a person that i jump on immediately because they're not afraid of the conversation right and and that translates to the complexities of running a business right um, because you, you're going to need to be able to deal with complex problems and complex issues. And this is a complex one. And for someone to be able to put themselves aside and say, I really want to understand this. You know, I've had people come to me and say, hey, Martha, have you met or heard of the guy, you know, it's an ex-football player, Emmanuel Acho, who has this YouTube channel where it's conversations with a black man, hard conversations with a black man. It's like, well, what's your view? I want to understand your experience, Martha, just growing up, right? Like as a black woman, like what are some of the things that your mom had to tell you, teach you? And one of the things I said was, yeah, I, you know, I remember growing up in Miami and going into, you know, um, Bow Harbor, which is the rich area of Miami Beach or going into Lord and Taylor and Nima Marcus and my mom is just like okay I'm gonna have to hold my purse under my arm because if I hold it low and walk through they think that I'm gonna steal something right and he said wow my I never my wife never had to tell you know my daughters that you know never had to, to tell like he was blown away but it showed him, he was just like, okay, now I, I'm starting to understand some things and I really want to dig deep and to understand your experience and what people may be thinking and why you may act a certain way or do a certain thing in certain environments and, and how I can be better, right? And so if, you continue, if we continue to do it at this level and we teach or make it safe, one, for them to come to us and ask these questions or for us to have these conversations in these corporate spaces, because typically it didn't happen between the four walls of the corporate spaces. They wouldn't necessarily happen outside because they're like, oh, she offended me or they're having, this person is racist, just send them to HR because you had that fear of being sent to HR. But because we're starting to create these safe places, spaces, it's going to make them better leaders all around. It's going to say, okay, I, I need someone that doesn't look like me on my development team because if I'm creating a new, you know, emoji, I want to make sure that it, it won't be offensive. You know, if I'm creating a new marketing campaign, I want to make sure it's not offensive. And I'm looking at everyone and, and taking in everyone's experiences and bringing that to the table. So absolutely from a grassroots level, that's how you're going to get, um, you're going to get mass change from a grassroots level. I just want to, I know Oscar's got a question, but I just want to, to add on just, it's, it's not just about it not being offensive. It's about developing the complexity of thinking at a Correct. young age. Correct. So you've got, you've got this bubbling up of people who are willing and able uh, and, and not afraid of complex problems. And they bring that to the table in every piece of business that they do. And that's what excites me around the kind of stuff you're talking about. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Oscar. <laughs> yeah. So the, the you know, so the complexity of thinking. Um, I just want to actually have two questions because there's another uh, initiative 
that you uh, run is, uh, I think, is Women in Technology. Um, yeah, so tell me a little bit more about that, but also how that fits with that complexity of thinking, uh, whether you, if, if that's a subject you cover within that initiative that you uh, run. Um, we cover so many things. We, we cover more so about... Um, how you belong, right? And the reason why executive estrogen came about is when I was working for a Silicon Valley company. Um, again, I was the only woman director and we would hire or we'd go recruit and we would try to get women to come to the table to interview and they just wouldn't. But then when we got them to the table and finally got them into, into positions, after about six weeks or a month or so, they're, they're gone. They're like, this is just too hard. And it's because they weren't heard or they found out that their, the salary that they negotiated um, was lower than the male counterparts that were hired right next to them. Um, and, uh, or they thought that the work was too hard or they couldn't do it because they wouldn't be listened to. Um, and so I opened up office hours and I was just like, guys, you, you cannot quit, right? You are just as smart as everyone, like I said, talked about the gray matter. Um, and this is how here are the tools that you need in order to succeed. One, you can't be afraid of your voice. You made it to the table for a reason. Um, you understand the database you know, that we're, we're about to build here. You understand the business. Don't be afraid to speak up. And if someone's in there that doesn't, you know, that doesn't want to hear your voice, then you basically say, excuse me, this is what I need to say, right? And I think as women, um, what I was trying to teach them is that you're not inferior and don't be afraid of your genius and of your brilliance that you bring to the table. Um, and how do you navigate that? If you are a young college girl straight out of, you know, straight 22 years old and you have all of these white old men telling you that your, your idea is, is bad, right? And so I also taught them how to express those ideas, whether it's on paper or on the whiteboard in order to show the value that they're bringing. Let's flow it out. Let's go through if-thens, right? And getting them more confident around that. The other thing is the salary negotiation. We all know that there's a problem with, with in the United States with um, men getting paid more than, than women. And it's even worse for black women. Um, and what I found was, again, fear. The fear to ask for what they were worth. I, I literally just had a, a, a consult not too long ago where someone was afraid to ask for the six figures and they had all of the, the, they had all of the qualifications and more, right? But it's how, how do you get over that? And it, it's inherent, right? And I'm, I'm not even sure how I, I got there. Right? How did I inherently just say, I'm not gonna accept this. I know what my value is. I've done my research. I know what the market pays for this position. You need to pay me X just like you pay everyone else, right? Um, and maybe it's because my dad taught me that. My dad always said that, ask for what you want. Um, but I think it's important for women to see me and, to, to, and for me to help them know that they will be okay if they ask and they won't price themselves out of the position. They won't get fired if they spoke up and that they belonged in the technical arena because they're thinking that it's a hard topic, right? And it's, and it's not. You've mastered it just like everyone else. So that, that's really what I do with executive estrogen because um, I think more young girls need to see people that look like me and women in these male-dominated industries. 
So you, you've, you're, you're talking here to sort of what's been one of the great privileges of my life here, Martha. And, and, and I, I've had, uh, I taught at a, at a university uh, with, uh, which focused on students from developing countries. So I ended up teaching people from um, Bangladesh and, and um, Mongolia and Afghanistan and Nepal. And, and I had a, a Mongolian student who was researching exactly what she was one of my research students. And she, she researched from a, a female Mongolian perspective, which is something that I would have. How do, how do you get that kind of experience? Um, the, the leadership challenge for women. And she identified um, exactly that. The, the, in an organization where everything was you know, they'd set up for for um, equality and, and you know no sexism etc and everything was 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 working fine but they couldn't find leaders to be promoted other than female leaders they were just not going up through the ladder and her research identified self confidence as the only only element that that men and women were were different so men were I'm confident that I can do the job the leadership jobs and women were I'm not very confident and. We, we framed it saying that the end of the, the research report was we've got to reimagine the leadership discourse. So instead of about of finding people who are assertive and self-confident and extrovert and, and you know, masculine and willing to step forward, we opened it up and said, look, you're competent and we know you're competent because we're coming from these perspectives and you can come and do these things. And, and that would then enable women to, to not just to step up, but to be identified but as a potential leader. So you're talking to, to that as an experience and, and you're seeing it happen in real time. So that, that, that's, that must be a great privilege for you as well to sort of to work in that space and to see it happen. But the, the question is, how confident are you that you can change this discourse again? So you're working on two massive discourses. One, the respect for black people and two, the respect for women leaders. So how confident are you you can change this discourse and, and, and think of leadership from a different perspective? Oh, I'm, I'm very confident. You, what you're talking about now is the intersectionality, right, of mm. being a black woman and um, or being black and then a woman. Right. Because you got challenges of being black and then you have mm. challenges of being a woman. I'm very confident that I can I can help at least move the needle. Right. And because it's a, it's teaching them the strategies, something as simple as saying, OK, research the salaries, you know, in Birmingham for, you know, SVP positions then add 30 to 40% on that. Then outline all of your, you know, your skill sets, all of the value that you bring, your outcomes. How did you increase profit? How did you increase revenue for, you know, the last organization that you work for? What does your leadership style look like? All of the things that you can bring value um, to this company. And then you then negotiate that, right? Because you're gonna meet somewhere in the middle. The problem is, you know, people look at it and they're just like, okay, I'm just gonna stop at the bottom. I'm gonna get what I can get. I, just to get my foot into the door and they don't understand that all of these experiences that they bring is what makes these companies much better, right? It what's, it's what makes us better as a company. It really does. And so that's where um, them seeing me do it and seeing me being transparent about my, my, my journey um, to getting higher salaries and commanding higher salaries and getting into these seats and getting into the doors that I've been privileged to get into, they say that I can do it, right? One of the stories that I tell is when I first got into uh, corporate America, my first job was consulting with um, IBM Global Services, right? And I found out 
about three months into it that my male counterpart was making 20,000 more than I was. So I went to the manager and I said, you gotta match me. We were doing the same exact job, right? And he said, can't do it, Martha. So I packed my bags, moved back to Miami with my parents, you know, cried all day. My parents were like, how did you leave a good job? Like, how did you leave this job? And um, I was fortunate that three months later, um, I got a call back from IBM and they said, we, we want you back. And they offered me $27,000 more than, you know, I was making. And he's now my, my, one of my dearest mentors, a great, great friend, but it's because I did not accept what was given to me. And I was, I took the risk. And that's the other thing. A lot of people are afraid to take the risk because they don't have the confidence in themselves that they will find something and that the universe will take care of them. But I was confident in my skill set, And I also knew the value that I can bring. Right? And hearing that story, girls or women are thinking, wow, man, maybe I can ask. And maybe there is a different path for me. Um, and maybe it will work. And that's why our stories are so important. Um, because if I didn't do it, who, who will? Who will do it for me? Right. And that's the one thing my dad always said, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And if the answer is no, then you know you can find another path, you'll find another way, if you really want it. One thing that, that strikes me, Martha, what you mentioned uh, just now is that you were willing to walk away from that deal, right? Because that's, yeah. I think that that seems to be quite pivotal, um, that you're, okay, you can ask, but you can, of course, get a no as well. And what you do then, because if you do you embarrass yourself or yeah, so this is, is this something that you emphasize because you just mentioned this very briefly, um, yes. how important is that to, 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 to prepare yourself that you need to basically stand your ground. And if it's not what you expect, you basically have several options. And one is basically to, to, to walk away. Yeah. And I frame it as taking risk, right? Because walking away, I don't know, I didn't know what the next step was. And as human beings, we love certainty, right? And especially as women, we plan and we want to know what the next step is. But you don't always know what the step, the next step is. And taking risk, um, especially when it comes to yourself, is always going to lead to greater things. You may not know what that greater thing is. And, and, and it's always going to lead to a lesson, right? Because I learned that walking away, I would still be okay. Because that's the thing. People are like, am I going to be okay? Am I going to find another job? Um, how long is it going to be? Because people have obligations. They have mortgages. They have rent. They have all these things that they need to take care of. But I knew that if I did not stand up for myself now, like what will happen later right? if I just accepted this? Um, and going into your career to say you always have a choice and people don't realize that. People, I hate when people say I have no choice. Like you always have a choice. It may not be a choice that you want to take because it might be a harder road, but you always have a choice, right? And, and that's the thing. And I'm like, just be prepared. At that point, I wasn't necessarily prepared. I was young and I said, well, I'll figure it out. And there's something to be said about um, sitting in uncertainty and working towards clarity because you don't always get clarity. Sometimes experience and learning gives you clarity. And that's one of the things that I also teach because in taking the risk, when you're taking a risk, you don't know what, what, might, not be on, what might be on the other side, but through that muddiness and through that cloud, 
you're going to find a path and that's where you're going to find your clarity and know exactly where you need to land, right? Or what your next step is going to be. And that's, and that's what I help them with as well. Um, know when to go and know that if you're not going to advocate for yourself, who, who will? Like you are your best advocate for yourself and, and not to be afraid of those. The, um, the, 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 the last question that I have for you is, is um, talking about this discourse, right? How we can actually uh, uh, um, uh, change this. And if you look at sort of creating future ready individuals and organizations, and especially I think you focus on, you know, on, both, on both parts, um, how, how can we actually do this to, to create and develop those future ready individuals? Um, developing, I guess the developing the future ready individuals is exposing them, right? And, and talking through this, exposing them to as much as we can. I think now, especially the, in the, at the college level, having these conversations, putting them into complex situations to where they need to work through it. I think role-playing is, is a great way for us to help um, people understand what's happening in other people's minds, right? Putting them in that seat. And I think the best place that we can do it is at the university level because they're immersed in a learning environment. Um, and then coming into the corporation, they're gonna come in with that thought process of, okay, this is how we change how we approach problem solving. This is how we, how we change um, how we approach creating products. You know? And I, I think that's the, the way that we can try to create future ready um, employees as we move forward, because the employees will then make future ready organizations, right? That, that, um, that can soar. So I, I, my final question is the same we ask everyone. And I'm going to, I'm circling back to that horrible question you had, where's the shareholder value, Martha? Where's the shareholder value? <laughs> um, so, and the way I'm circling back is that, that we, we argue, Oscar and I, that, that, that the current way of doing business is, is so entrenched in the past. Uh, it's costing organizations across the OECD about three trillion, nine trillion, sorry, of lost revenue, lost potential, lost possibility. So you're, you know, what, what are, the question I would ask is if, if, if your vision of this sort of pluralistic um, organizations where, where this bubbling up of people who, who, who have dealt with complexity all their lives get the opportunities that they, they deserve and then they're qualified for, what does organizational future look like? What kind of world will we create? Oh, what kind of world will we create? I think what we would, what kind of world we'll create is a world that um, sheds assumptions and continue to ask why. And I think if we do that, we'll always be in a space and um, that we're getting better, right? Um, because yeah, we're changing it now, but we're gonna continue to change and continue to change. It's what I do with my sons is I encourage them to continue to ask, why is this like it is? How can we change it? Is that an assumption? you know, and how does that make us better? And I think leaders will continue to keep, well, they will need to keep that at their forefront in their minds in order for us to create future ready um, organizations um, with people who can think, you know, through complex problems, but still not afraid to ask that question why and to challenge their assumption and to keep that curiosity um, front and center. Um, and I think that's the way that we We'll do it because I think it's intrinsic, right? We can create processes and workflows all day long, 
but it's the people who execute it. So it's the people who, who, are, who become leaders. It's their values. You know, it's what's important to them. Um, and, and if they continue with this singular track and not be able to accept or bring in diversity of thought and, and appreciate it, then that I think then we'll continue to stay stagnant. So I, I would say we got to continue to challenge the assumptions. We got to always ask why. We always got to stay curious. You're hopeful? The, after this conversation now, I'm, I'm a little more hopeful after talking through it, right? Uh, because some, some days I'm hopeful, some days I'm like, oh, I don't know what's going on. But, uh, but I, I, at my core, I'm, I'm absolutely hopeful. I'm, I'm absolutely hopeful. Great, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you, Martha. On that positive note, uh, Martha, I'd like to thank you for this uh, really fascinating uh, hour talking with you uh, and Richard for uh, getting up as well. Thanks a lot. Yeah.